everyone. I'm Alicia Swamy. I'm here with my co-hosts, Keely Severson and Eric Johnson, and we are exposing mold. Today, we are going to talk about mold illness. Is it or is it not dose-dependent, Eric or Keely? Well, if you accept that uh, these microparticles uh, are transported in nanoparticle form and can travel up the olfactory nerve, and prime the microglia directly through stimulating the brain, then of course not. There's no way. There's a certain portion of it that toxins from the, the mycotoxins from the mold will build up your, in your body and exert an influence that is dose-related at, at some point, obviously. But if there's an aspect of this that is an entirely separate mechanism, and that mechanism bypasses considerations of dose dependency, then no, the microglia can be primed directly in a way that means that dosage doesn't matter. Just the impact, how much of this gets in your nose and goes up the olfactory nerve is going to dictate what kind of response. Eric, I think what I hear you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is maybe in a situation of cancer or organ failure where you're suspecting mycotoxicosis as the cause, it takes a specific dose to get to that point. But with mold hypersensitivity and our hypersensitive reactions, our reactions aren't necessarily dose-dependent because you could have a very serious reaction that feels like you're going to die or that puts you in bed for a month with just a tiny bit of exposure. Exactly. So, there's so you're kind of differentiating of the, uh, here what would be hypersensitivity, you would say, is absolutely not dose-dependent. It's an immune system response that's not dose-dependent, whereas some other aspects of mold-related illness may be. Yeah, there have been studies in Africa that show that the high levels of mycotoxins in the grains are associated with certain cancers and immune dysfunctions. So clearly, there there is... a dose-dependent mycotoxin-type illness, but is it possible that people have been focusing on that to an extent that it derailed interest in the clues that suggest that there's a sudden impact kind of illness that is not dose-dependent? And I believe that's what's happened. I I think that uh, in certain situations where the stachybotrys was so bad and people walked in and got sick very quickly, shows that there is something entirely different, so overwhelming. And of course, you could just pass this off by saying, well, that was just a really, really bad high-level exposure. Maybe, and maybe not. What would the clues be that show that there's a different mechanism that needs to be explored? And I believe that what we've learned about nanoparticles traveling up the olfactory nerve suggests that there is a hidden super toxic exposure event that is not dose dependent, that is being hidden by the focus on trying to turn this into, well, you've got this amount of ochratoxin A, or you've got this level of uh, xerolinone or uh, deoxynivalenol. And the focus on this is so extreme that it's, it's overshadowed the way people can get a sudden impact type of illness which is commonly described with barometric pressure change. There are so many people that talk about the change in the weather and something happened with the mold where in a very short period of time, 
and exposure puts them over the edge and they relapse for long periods of time. So that's where I talked about bioavailability. What is it about barometric range, barometric pressure change, or a change in the weather that makes things bioavailable in a certain way that is so spectacular that it's obviously not a dose-dependent type of illness? Eric, how would you answer somebody who asks the question of why why do all of my family members have different symptoms or different ranges of illness with nobody really being as sick as as I am in well, terms in relation to to dosage? Yeah, what, look what at your the, thoughts on that. Just look at what happens in sick buildings. Just look at the people in there. How people in certain rooms become ill while people on the other side of the building do not. So there, there's a certain amount of exposure, dosage-related, that comes into play here. And then there's the people that got too close to a colony who get that sudden impact kind of illness, where maybe they were just the workmen who came to clean up the mold, and they got a massive slam that knocked them out. So you've got that variable that seemed to prime their immune system and put them over the edge. And then there's the viral factor where people get some kind of Epstein-Barr virus reactivation, cytomegalovirus, HHV6, some concurrent viral exposure that causes a cytokine cascade that could act as a priming event. And that's what we seem to see in the original chronic fatigue syndrome cluster, where people were going along, maintaining with the exposure that was going on, the chemicals and the toxic mold. And then a virus came through, and that's what put them down for the count. So they acquired a hypersensitivity of chronic type of illness, which people in the very next room did not have. And so the psychologizers and the doctors say, well, not everybody in the building got sick. So therefore, it's either non-existent or something wrong with you. Maybe not. Maybe something was so bad in the colonies that they were directly exposed to that it was a threshold event that put them over the edge. So that's how I explain it to people who say, well, only one person or one or two in the family are getting sick. Well, maybe they didn't have the virus. Maybe they didn't have a mycoplasma infection. Maybe they didn't have some kind of, you know, Marcons, which Dr. Shoemaker has been talking about. But just because not everybody has the equal illness in that room or in that building is not sufficient reason to put the blame back on some personal deficiency, a genetic flaw, emotional stress or something peculiar to them, it could very well be that they were just in a bad place at a bad time and got an overwhelming confluence of events that drove them into hypersensitivity. I also suspect and observe that when people make the statement, I was the only one that was sick in my house or me and my one son and no one else was sick, just because everyone doesn't have the exact same illness presentation or the same category of symptoms does not mean that everyone's not sick. And I think sometimes people could have illness presentations that aren't commonly thought of as mold illness, and so it goes under the radar. Personality changes, things that are classified as mental health, recurrent infections, things that are diagnosed as other things. <laughs> the milk goblin's dying. Sorry, that noise was so distracting. Um, it seems like often when people ask that question, 
why am I the only one that's sick? They're not actually the only one that's sick, but other people might have symptoms that are different. That could be strong personality changes or something less commonly associated with mold illness. So sometimes the question isn't even true as an honest question at at its basis is what I'm trying to say. Gaslighting. (laughs) That's right. They're they're trying to discount the fact of your illness by saying that everybody else must surely have it or it's all in your head. Oh, and and the genetic factor. People could then gaslight you into saying, well, you're so sick and you're at your level because you have bad genes. You're just a weak person. It's crazy. Yeah. When I first got interested in the sick building phenomenon, it was such a localized event that I could stand at a distance out of the bad zone and observe people going in, supposedly healthy people, teachers, teenagers, strong, healthy kids, and watch them for any change in their behavior or physical manifestation. They send something bad. And I saw it big time. I mean, they would yawn and you know, move into a protective stance, or some people would just outright turn around and run. And I proposed to people studying sick building syndrome, if you just put up a camera, you can see it in people. You can see it. It's not difficult. (laughs) But they didn't want to do that. I've definitely noticed really big personality changes upon exposure in people who don't consider themselves mold sick or don't consider themselves sensitized. So I guess just adding to your observation is this affects people even when they don't realize that they've been affected or even if others don't observe them as affected. Once you see this, you kind of see it everywhere, literally everywhere. Dr. Shoemaker actually did a study where he wondered if the supposedly healthy people in sick buildings were truly invulnerable as they thought. So he looked at their inflammatory markers and found, no, they simply hadn't hit the wall yet. That's all it was. Yeah, it brings me back to like the whole CFS incident when they did the testing on people who, you know, had the titers and had these overt symptoms, but they also tested the immune systems of those who had no symptoms and they still showed some sort of immune system failure. And so it's like symptoms don't mean that you're, you know, it's not just about symptom presentation, meaning that you're sick. You can have literally no symptoms and this is still affecting you. And I think we always say this, but I think we need to reiterate the point that poison is poison. There's no one that is uh, shielded or, you know, is superior in genetic bloodline when it comes to to being exposed to poison. Not even our animals are safe. But uh, getting back to the point about, uh, is this a dose-dependent illness? If you inhale something toxic, it takes a certain amount of time for that effect to translate into the heart acting weird, move through the blood and into the brain. And so I would hold my breath and go into a stachybotrys situation and then take a breath. And the reaction seemed to occur so quickly that it was prior to the amount of time it would take for the toxin to get through the blood and into the brain. So that suggested to me that it was the mechanism of traveling up the olfactory nerve being sensed neurologically in a manner that is not dose dependent, but strictly uh, instantaneous toxic threat to the nervous system. And in a way, when I talk about the rebreathing effect, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm looking for. I walk into a place and then I start looking for a change in how what I'm inhaling affects me. And when I get that instant response where it appears that something that I am 
processing by the very nature of stripping oxygen out of the air somehow unleashes this effect. And it occurs so quickly that it's, it takes place faster than a dose-related response ought to take. That's my sign that I am in a truly bad environment. And that's when I know to turn around, turn around and run. I believe that the reason I'm doing as well as I am, and I've managed to take control of this illness in the way that I have, is by singling out this particular subset, this specific effect. That's why I call it the Eric Johnson effect. This effect stands out from a conceptualization of this as a dose-related illness. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Home Cleanse, formerly known as All American Restoration, is a company that specializes in improving indoor air quality through proper mold remediation, offering services nationwide. You can visit them at homecleanse.com to learn more. The Mold Guy performs mold sampling and testing for homeowners, renters, and businesses. Please visit themoldguyinc.com to learn more. Black Diamond Services provides solutions to the unforeseen challenges that can affect homes and families with no out-of-pocket costs. Services include temporary housing relocation and mold test referrals for homeowners. Visit blackdiamondservices.com to learn more. Great Plains Laboratory provides toxic exposure testing to those living in compromised environments. Tests include the Mycotox panel that tests for mycotoxins in urine samples and the Envirotox panels tests for environmental chemicals in the urine and provides an overall metabolic snapshot of a patient's health. Visit gp-labs.com to learn more. Thank you again for your sponsorships. It is integral to our ability to serve our community and to improve the quality of life for all. It sounds like what you're saying is the effect doesn't depend on a dosage. Like a, a big dosage or a small dosage can both produce the same effect. And so it doesn't really give a clue about the level of exposure, just maybe the route of exposure. Yeah, Dr. Martin Paul talked about this with the vanilloid receptors in the nose. And vanilloid because the, these receptors are very sensitive to vanilla. So they were, it was very useful to be able to detect extremely low levels of molecules by testing, I guess, vanilla. And um, these receptors have a direct connection to the brain up the olfactory nerve, direct. And people, his, in his view, were sensing chemical exposures, not just mycotoxins, but chemical exposures, and transmitting this information directly through the vanilloid receptors up the olfactory nerve to the microglia in the brain. So it's very possible that we have sensing mechanisms that tell us, that give us useful information about many types of chemical exposures. And it's instant, and it's not dose-related. But I singled out the one with the stachybotrys with the mycotoxins because that was my particular irritant, and that's my field of interest. But I don't want to limit it to just that when this probably applies to other chemicals as well. My uh, grandfather told me kind of a funny story. The um, rotten egg smell in natural gas, when, when natural gas was first introduced, it didn't, didn't have that. There was no warning, so you couldn't tell if you had a leak. And of course, all these pipes were going bad, and people would have, have horrible leaks that wouldn't show up until a flame got too close to a leak, and buildings all over San Francisco were blowing up. 
huge, terrible explosions. And they finally introduced the methylmercaptans, which is a sensitizing agent. And what makes it so useful is that it's perceptible at a few parts per million, extremely super low levels. And you can tell the rotten egg odor. And it's a sensitizing agent. And that's what it's used for because it sensitizes nerves. And when they introduced this into the natural gas, people all over San Francisco were complaining that this rotten egg thing that they put into it must be damaging the pipe because all of a sudden they can smell natural gas where they never could smell it before while they were just detecting leaks for the first time. And that's kind of the uh, view that I have of what's going on with the mycotoxins, that they were probably always around, that they didn't really change as dramatically as people think, but a sensitizing agent made them bioavailable to us, made them more apparent, sensitized the nerves. So that would make the problem the sensitization of the nerves more so than the dose, because that's what allowed it to be bioavailable, whereas before they weren't bioavailable, causing the same type of problems. Yeah, and one has to wonder if this methylmercaptans is such a powerful sensitizing agent to introduce it on such a large scale. What's this going to do to people over the long run? We weren't evolutionarily exposed to this stuff. and now. We've got constant low levels of a sensitizing agent in our environment. So what's that doing? Is that opening us up to other stuff? I don't know. So are you saying what they put in the gas to make it detectable could have possibly opened us up to something else? Sure. Because it's a low-level inflammatory irritant. I wish all this stuff was documented and we could see the progression. So is this, did we just make an argument for toxic soup? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, our human life is constant exposure to multiple, multiple things. So science is directed to trying to narrow in, refine our view such that we can isolate certain variables and control them as much as possible. You can't write things off as toxic soup because then you'll never isolate those variables and you'll never control them. And that was my issue with Dr. Shoemaker in the direction he moved with SIRS. It started out narrow enough that he was focused on Sacchibotrys and he was looking at the blue-green algae. And this is a manageable data set, few enough factors that we can find out, are these changing? What are they doing? Can we move away from them? But once you go down the path of going, well, this is just the sum total of anything and everything, then you can't do anything about any of them. If you go into a shoemaker doctor now, and while SIRS is the result of uh, everything from ciguatoxin to brown recluse spiders, well, what are you supposed to do if you have no brown recluse spiders in your environment? How's buying a high-tech air filter going to filter out the brown recluse spiders? I don't have much use for that kind of toxic mentality. I want to know what it is in my environment that changed, that didn't used to be there, that's making me and others sick now in a way that didn't previously used to happen. So basically, any healthcare provider that's saying something like, well, of course, you're not going to be healthy in this increasingly toxic world. You should probably run. Well, I, I'm sure they're correct. There's enough truth in that statement that it's, it's valid to make that assertion, but it has very little practical value. Keely Severson is passionate and committed to exposing the truth about toxic mold and its effects on the human body. 
Many mold-injured people are often misdiagnosed with autoimmune conditions, nerve damage, mental illnesses, and other chronic health conditions due to the lack of knowledge about water damage and toxic mold growing in their homes. The crippling effects of toxic mold on the body has destroyed many lives. Been there, done that. When she became a healthcare provider specializing in acupuncture and herbal medicine, it was only then that she truly began to understand the connection between her health and the environment that she was living in. Three years after becoming a licensed care provider, she became incredibly ill. She was suffering from kidney failure, reoccurring UTIs, and various negative mental health symptoms. When she learned that her family had been dwelling with mold trapped under her kitchen floor, the relationship between the toxic mold factor and her health finally began to make sense. It became part of her life's mission to help educate society on the extreme effects that mold can have on the body. Her work is vital because there exists a lack of experience and acknowledgement for mainstream medical practitioners and even mold experts. She has firsthand experience dealing with mold exposure, and she makes sure to address all the signs and symptoms during every environmental screening that she performs. She's developed a line of organic herbal tinctures and formulas to help most patients reduce symptoms commonly associated with toxic mold exposures. These symptoms vary and can manifest themselves very differently from person to person. Her herbal education and experience has helped her increase awareness and recognize signs in patients that may result from their toxic environments. Keely's dedication to learning and understanding the effects of toxic mold and educating and bringing awareness to her patients and other providers keep her motivated. She knows just how devastating the untreated consequences can be on your health and the health of your families, relationships, and life outcomes. If you or someone you know may be affected by toxic mold exposure, rest assured that you and Keely will work together to find a solution. By working together to treat the symptoms and stay educated on toxic mold exposures, we can reduce the impact of this devastating phenomenon. To consult with Keely, please visit exposingmold.com slash consultations. That's exposingmold.com slash C-O-N. S-U-L-T-A-T-I-O-N-S. Book your appointment today. I feel like people say that in relation to saying like everything is dangerous and you can't say just one thing is the most dangerous. And they're getting worse and worse and worse until they want to outlaw all perfumes. I mean, every chemical and society is not going to tolerate that. They're not going to assist in that project. I think the mold community has done themselves a huge disservice by adding to their list of toxic molds that now go so far as to claim that any mold, any bacteria, any water damage is something that you should be afraid of. Can't live that way. Which is what people think that we're, we are doing when we recommend mold avoidance. It's, it's funny how that's actually not what we're doing, but people think we are. And then the people who do do it, people don't think are doing that. Yeah, when this backlash against mold avoidance first manifested in the sick buildings group back in 2000. I was describing how by simply getting clear in the desert, I was unmasking and better able to narrow down specifically what I was reacting to when I went back into civilization. And somehow that got twisted around to mean that Eric is living in the desert in a tent with only rattlesnakes and scorpions for company. And he wants everybody else to live the same way. 
I'm going, no, I'm not. You look, look where I'm at. <laughs> uh, yes, I do spend a lot of time in the desert as an experiment to help me refine this concept, but that's not how I plan to live out my life. And that's not what mold avoidance is all about. So when people said, no, I don't care if you've got a picture of a house behind you, you're still living in the tent in the desert. I'm going, that, if that's how you want to be, then call it the godforsaken desert. And if you want to weed yourself out and deprive yourself of knowing about this strategy, more power to you. Well, the people that try to take you down are just people with profit motives to sell their bullshit air purifiers and filtration systems and their clairvoyance conversations. I don't know. But what is that mold expert that's scheduling free clarification conversations or something? Like, how stupid are you? <laughs> like, if something is working... You should be elevating that and helping people with that and help them get to that point where they can. I mean, you don't have to live in the tent in the desert. The tent, the desert experiment is just for you to understand your symptoms in relation to your surroundings and contaminated items and such. I mean, it's just, it's just refining your senses to understand, all right, when I have these feelings in buildings or things then that means that I'm in, in the presence of contamination. I'm in the presence of a moldy building. I need to leave. I mean, literally, that's what it is. <laughs> so I think, it's a, I think it's a confusing and new idea for people to think in terms of being able to feel something inside of their body that is externally from them communicating with their internal being. So the idea of sensing something in your environment and it communicating with your body to give you information and then using that as a skill, I feel like is a very confusing idea to people. Well, we don't have any mental framework that allows us to grasp the existence of something acting in that way. Mm -hmm. We kind of do, like electricity or heat. We know there are things out there that emanate from a source point and we can feel it. But applying this to mold, microbial colonies, no, that's unfamiliar. And I think the reason for that is because this was very low level in the past, not non-existent. There's sufficient descriptions of it to go, yeah, there's something to this. But sometime in the 1980s, it went through the roof and something about microbial colonies having a range to them and affecting people at a distance. That's when these complaints really started to take off like a rocket, where one person in the house would get sick and you would find out, well, they were sleeping right next to the wall with the toxic mold. The rest of the family wasn't. So then in that case, would that be dose dependent or not? Or proximity dependent? Because the proximity is what allowed it to become bioavailable through the exposure. Well, it sure looked that way. It looked that way so strongly that that created a satisfactory explanation so you don't need to look any further. Okay, you got too close to the colony, you got a higher dose. There it is. But that didn't hold up. We didn't find super high doses in these people. And then there were those who would just go into an environment and become ill very quickly. Or the people that move in and out of a range of a colony and can feel it. These exceptions didn't really jibe with dose dependency, because if you move two or three feet, you're probably not changing your dose all that much. 
Yet to a hypersensitive person, it makes all the difference in the world. So you need to really focus on that exception and how that doesn't fit the dose-dependent model before you even take interest in the effect to know to look for it. <laughs> you got that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that that's a I think this is going to be a tough one for people to understand because it is pretty confusing. Hopefully this conversation provides clarification. Well, there was an incident on South America that I like to use for an example where a hospital was abandoned and all the equipment was just left in place and people looted the hospital and took what they could. Anyway, the these kids started showing up and they had burns on their fingers. Burns. I mean, physical. Like they had grabbed something red hot and it drove people crazy. And observation of these kids, they were playing with marbles, you know, glass marbles. And uh, you get the big steely and that's all part of the game. And these kids, it showed up with the marbles often enough that some adults took notice of this, took the marbles away from the kids and got burns themselves from handling these marbles. One guy actually put them in his pocket and he had burns on his legs from marbles. Okay, that's just crazy. That's impossible. Well, they use uh, radioactive elements in these hospitals for their uh, chemotherapy and some they're in the form of marbles, like the Steelies played in the, in the game of marbles. And when they looted these hospitals, so these highly radioactive marbles were being passed around and kids were playing with them. And that's where they got the burns from. And they finally worked out that this is what was happening. But what was amazing is that from a conceptual framework of a marble being just a sphere of some fairly harmless substance, either steel or glass, you would never conceive of anything like this happening. You'd never figure it out. You'd have to know about radiation. And it was only the people to go, what, what on earth could burn somebody that way? a radiation burn, they were able to work out this puzzle. And then they went out there with Geiger counters and found that even the place where these marbles had been transported left a trail of radiation. They were that bad. So the question here is, if you encounter something that doesn't fit your conceptual framework, you've got a choice to make. You can go, well, that doesn't make any sense and not look any further. Or I better look into this because it's happening and it makes no sense according to what I know. 